Well, let's continue with our stories uh, in the book of Esther. That took place in Persia long ago, on the 5th century B.C., and we're up to chapter 6. It's right before Job and the Psalms. I'm going to do the introduction, and then I'll read chapter 6, and we'll pray before we uh, read that. Um, But let's say you're uh, messing around playing basketball with your friends one time, and uh, one of your friends makes a half-court shot. What do you say? You say, lucky shot, right? Of course, your friend's going to argue, and he's going to say, no, it's all skill. (laughs) Or if you and your friend sign up to, you're at a gas station together for some reason and you're inside and you both sign up to win free gas for a year, you'd say to her, what are the chances or odds of one of us winning? You'd use the term chance probably. Or or let's pretend that you were just thinking about your sister and her birthday and you were going to give her a gift card that you'd know she'd like, but you went to the store first and you just so happened to see her at the store. You would say, that's random, that's a coincidence. We use language like luck and chance and coincidence from our point of view in our daily language. Because from our limited human perspective, sometimes things seem to randomly happen with no rhyme or reason. If you remember one story, in 1 Kings 22, Israel's army was fighting the Syrian army, and King Ahab dressed like a soldier because he didn't want the Syrian army to know he was the king. And some Syrian um, soldier, remember the story? He just randomly shot an arrow, and it hit King Ahab and killed him. We, We would say, lucky shot. And so when we think about this, Ecclesiastes actually talks about this randomness and chance from our own perspective. It says, the fastest runner doesn't always win the race. And the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. It's all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. Ecclesiastes 9. So this is the world that we live in, where things seem random and coincidental, full of chance. And that's also the world in Persia back in the 5th century when the Jews were exiled in the Persian kingdom. Remember that uh, the orphaned Jewish teenager Esther, who happened to be beautiful, somehow ends up as queen over the whole Persian Empire. And remember, uh, randomly, her her uncle Mordecai, what he does almost leads or is leading to a genocide of all the Jewish people. There's a lot of chance and randomness and seemingly arbitrary things happening. It's a story they lived in, or it's the world they lived in and the world we live in. And in our story, we're going to see some more random things. In fact, there's some comedy here. I think one of the Jewish commentators on this said this is like a comedy of errors in chapter 6. So let's pray and then we'll read the chapter. Father, in a moment we are going to read a story, an ancient one of your people. And so we pray that you'd open our ears and hearts to listen carefully and understand this truth. Keep us awake. Keep Satan far from us. And don't let him pluck the seed of the word that's sown this morning, but may it grow 30, 60, and even a hundredfold to your glory. So bless the preaching of the word in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll read the whole chapter. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. 
And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Begtana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to honor the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. It's God's word. So the story continues here, uh, like we've been reading. And remember that the king said to Esther, I'll give you anything that you want. And Esther said, come to a feast, and, and that happens twice. Um, so the, the story goes, though, that the king couldn't sleep. Maybe he had eaten too much at the party, or maybe he struggled with insomnia, or maybe he just had one of those random nights where he couldn't sleep. Maybe, maybe you've had that, where usually you sleep okay, but once in a while you just can't sleep. King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus can't sleep. So randomly, he tells one of his servants, you know, get out the old Persian history book, the old chronicles of Persia, where they tell all these great stories of magnif magnificent deeds in Persia, and read the history book to me. Now, we actually learned in chapter 2 that there was a book of the chronicles of Persia. Countries back then, nations back then, would keep chronicles of their country. Uh, Israel, of course, did, and others did. So the king wants that history book read to him because he can't sleep. Maybe it was for entertainment. Those great old stories of the Persian heroes. Or maybe it's because history bored him <laughs> and it would just kind of lull him to sleep. Maybe if you were in high school and you didn't like history class, you, you know what that means. It, it just lull you into sleep. 
But it just so happened that one of the stories, again, randomly, one of the stories that King Xerxes hears as he's trying to get to sleep is a story that happened just a few years before this, when Mordecai, the Jewish man, heard that assassination plot of two Persian bodyguards. And Mordecai tells Esther the queen, and and Queen Esther tells the king, and Mordecai essentially saves the king from an assassination. And that catches the king's attention. Now he's awake. And he says, hey, what did we do for that guy who foiled the assassination plot? And the servant says nothing. You know, he, maybe he looks in the, in the scroll and says, yeah, I don't, I don't see any record of us giving him anything. Now, that would bother the king because, you know, as a king, as a ruler, if someone did such a noble deed in the kingdom, you'd want to reward him so other people would do noble things. So in the middle of that night, when the king couldn't sleep, now he's thinking, we need to honor Mordecai for foiling the assassination plot. And then another random things happen, thing happens in the story in verse 4. Um, uh, it just so happens um, that, that Haman is in the court, and the king says, who is in the outer court? Now, this is random. It could be that the king is asking his servants, go look who's out in the court, because I want some advice for how to honor Mordecai. Or maybe the king heard some noise out there, and he's saying, hey, who's out there? And it just so happens to be Haman. Okay, remember who Haman is. He's kind of like the vice president of Persia, second in power, because the king honored him so much. Um, Do you remember why Haman was going to see the king? Haman was going to see the king because his friends and his wife just said, we know you hate Haman so much, or hate Mordecai so much that you want him dead. Go ask the king if you can make these huge gallows and, and put Mordecai on them to execute him. So Haman is in the king's court to ask the king if he could execute Mordecai. So the king says, let Haman in. And then um, he, Haman asks Mordecai, or sorry, the king asks Haman, what can I do for the man that I really like to honor? Haman, you know, I want to really honor someone. What should I do for him? Now, we know the king likes to give gifts, right? He's great at throwing feasts. He just asked Esther what gifts she wanted. And the king wants advice on how to honor someone who's done something great. Now, what is Haman thinking? Um, it's in verse 6. It's pretty arrogant. Did you, did you notice that? Haman is thinking, well, he's thinking about me. I mean, who else is the king going to want to honor except for me? Who deserves the king's honor more than me? Surely it's got to be me. I'm entitled to being honored by the king. It's interesting. Some people, when it comes to their self-image, are on one extreme, and it's very low. They believe that everyone else thinks they're dumb and ugly and worthless or something. Haman's on the opposite end of that spectrum. He's full of himself. Everyone loves me. Of course the king is thinking about how he can honor me. Because, I mean, who wouldn't want to honor me? And so we already learned about Haman's pride in the chapter before this. If you read chapter 5, Haman is bragging to his wife and his friends about his family, about his money, and about his honor. Haman is very self-centered and proud. So there's something funny going on here. Did you catch that? 
The king says, how can I honor someone I, I want to honor? And he's thinking about Mordecai, the Jew. Haman, coming in there to see if he can execute Mordecai, the Jew, thinks the king wants to honor him, who is Haman. So they totally miss each other's meaning. And so uh, Adele Berlin, one of the Jewish commentaries, said, this is a cosmic misunderstanding of enormous proportion. Or another good commentary, uh, Karen Jobes said, this is arguably the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. While Haman plots Mordecai's outrageous death, the king plans to honor Mordecai's faithful service. So Haman's answer is, oh, okay, so you know, if the king wants to honor me so much, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, oh king, how you can honor someone you want to honor. Basically, treat him like a king. Let him wear your royal robes, which would be very significant in that culture. Let him ride on your royal horse, which would also be significant, and, and parade him through the streets and have one of your highest officials say, this is what the king does when he wants to honor someone. Simon can pro Haman's probably just picturing it. Oh, I, I can't wait. <laughs> this is going to be great. Treat the guy like a king as much as you can without actually making him king. That's what Haman is saying. It might remind us of how long before this pharaoh had honored Joseph in Egypt. Maybe there's some echoes. And today, you know, if you wanted to honor someone in our country today, um, you'd give him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Maybe you'd bring this guy to the White House, let him sit at the Oval Office desk for a day or something like that. Give him highest honors. That's what Haman says they should do for the guy you want to honor. And then the king says, did you, did you catch Then Here's the funny part. Um, after Haman is saying, here's what you should do, the king says to Haman, hurry, like, you know, quickly, take the robes and the horse, just like you said, and do to Mordecai the Jew. Do everything that you said to Mordecai. If only we could see Haman's expression. <laughs> Wait, what? Did he just say Mordecai the Jew? I bet you Haman's jaws, or jaw dropped and his eyes went wide in shock. Maybe Haman was thinking, why in the name of all the Persian gods would the king want to honor Mordecai instead of me? I can only imagine what Haman was thinking. But to add insult to in, in, uh, injury, um, the king wants Haman to do this to Mordecai. It's not just like some other official in the kingdom, but Haman, you go do this and, and give Mordecai these highest honors. One commentator, uh, actually one of the professors I had at seminary, Ian Duguid said, Haman's dream had turned into a nightmare. Just like that. And Haman can't say no to the king. You, you don't remember, you don't want to make King Xerxes angry. Think good things don't happen when the king gets angry. So Haman has to do it, basically. He's kind of forced. So the story goes, verse 11, Haman takes the robes and puts them on Mordecai the Jew, puts uh, Mordecai the Jew on the king's horse and leads him through the city square, and Haman is shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wants to honor. What an ironic and comic twist. You talk about role reversal. Remember, not long before this, Mordecai the Jew was in the streets mourning because of the genocidal order of the king and ashes, and sackcloth. But now Mordecai is sitting on the king's horse wearing the king's robes. What an ironic reversal. 
Mordecai goes from dust to glory, so to speak. And again, I, I know we, we, the Bible doesn't say what Haman was thinking, but, you know, we're, we're people. <laughs> we know what someone would think the whole time. I wonder if Haman was muttering angry words under his breath at Mordecai the whole time. But we do know what Haman did. After he parades Mordecai through the street, in verse um, uh, 12, uh, Haman hurries back to his house, mourning with his head covered. He's sad and grieving, like that word means like lamenting even. And when someone would cover their head while mourning, that's an outward sign of grieving. Like when David and his men were forced out of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 15, they, they wept and covered their heads mourning as they left Jerusalem. That's what Haman is doing. He's mourning. But why is Haman mourning or grieving? Well, one commentator, Michael Fox, said he's mourning for his lost honor. Or he's mourning over his wounded pride. And he goes and he tells his wife and his friends, I'm sure he's, you know, super uh, upset and, and sad. He says, he tells everything to his wise men and his wife. And, and they're very prophetic in their answer. You know, they're the ones who said, go ask the king if you can have Mordecai impaled on that huge pole. And now Haman says, yeah, that's not going to happen. And look what they say to him. They basically say to him, now depressing and cynical news, they say, since Mordecai, this man who humiliated you, is a Jew, you're never going to succeed in your plans against him, and it will be fatal if you try to oppose him. Earlier, they're like, have him killed. And now they're like, yeah, it's useless. You're never going to be able to succeed against Mordecai. Your personal kingdom is starting to crumble, Haman, and the bricks are starting to crack. It's random and almost prophetic in a crazy way. And so here's a hint in the story then that, that maybe the Jewish people in the Persian Empire will actually survive that evil decree of Haman. Right now you get a little window of hope that maybe this decree isn't going to come, up, come to pass that all the Jews are killed. And right then, the story goes, another kind of random thing. Right when they were talking, the king's eunuchs or servants arrived, and they hurry Haman to Esther's banquet. And I'm sure it's not going to be a fun party for Haman. So what do we do with the story as far as application goes? You know what I mean? Um, what do we take away from the story? I'd love to hear your thoughts on you know, sermon application here. Well, I think one thing, and I kind of pointed it out a little bit, um, I think Haman's pride is something that we can talk about. There's a red flag in the story, and it's Haman's inflated ego, or in our terms, we would call it narcissism. He's extremely full of himself, thinking about himself. So really, in the story, if you kind of catch the storyline about Haman, he's, he's elevated to this high position in the kingdom, and he's bragging to his friends and family about it. And he goes to ex ask the king if he could execute someone he doesn't like, essentially. And when Haman went into this throne room of one of the great, of the, the kings of the great Persian world empire, Haman is thinking about himself. The king has to be talking about me. You, you know, you can see in the story that Haman is very full of himself. He's proud. He's, he's a narcissist. Um, 
psychologists today would maybe say he has narcissistic personality disorder. Self-absorbed. Thinking about himself all the time, talking about himself all the time. And I was thinking about this. If Haman was in our culture, he'd probably be famous. If Haman lived here in our culture today, he'd be famous because Americans are obsessed with people who are obsessed with themselves. <laughs> we're, we're kind of strange that way. So there's some pride here in the story. And when we think about Haman's pride or arrogance, his pride and his anger are tied together. Haman is so proud that twice in the story of Esther, when he is not giving the honor he thinks he deserves, he goes into rage mode, anger. Pride and anger sometimes go together like that. And so there's a warning, I think, for us. When the evil twins of anger and arrogance fuse together in a person, watch out, get away, run fast. The twin sins of anger and arrogance together are devastating. You know, just a note, young women, don't date or marry men who are arrogant or quick to anger. But another thing about Haman's arrogance and anger is that his arrogance and his anger blinded him to reality. He was so angry with Mordecai, he only saw red, as it were, and he could see nothing else. He was so arrogantly preoccupied with his own selfish desires that he was blind to everything else. So pride and anger often blind people so they can't see reality. Have you ever had it when you were so mad? I mean, just think of a time when you were fuming in anger. You probably did something stupid, right? Or sinful, or both. Because anger kind of blinds us to reality and what's right and wrong. Or pride and arrogance. Did you ever have it? Maybe you had it in life where you're thinking about yourself so much that you end up hurting someone else. Because pride blinds us to truth and reality. Pride and anger distort a person's vision and thinking and blinds them. This is one reason why Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction and anger is overwhelming. And so I'm just kind of highlighting this for a real-life reminder, a real-story reminder of, of uh, what Paul says in the New Testament to Christians in Ephesians. Let all wrath and anger be put away from you. One application. Put away anger and wrath. Be slow to anger. If you do have an anger problem, if you do struggle with, with uh, being quick to anger, you need to bring that to the Lord and, and confess it and ask him for help and, and even ask a friend to hold you accountable because anger is destructive. It's also a good real-life reminder of what Peter says in 1 Peter. Clothe yourself with humility, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Don't think better of yourself than you are, is another text. So once again, if you struggle with this, if you are very self-focused, and if you are always thinking about yourself and your schedule and what you want to do and what you are going to do, you know, think about that. Are you very selfish and self-centered? It's one of those things that we need to put away in the Christian life, our pride and arrogance. Ask the Lord to help us with that. And again, find a Christian friend to help you through that. So pride and anger, I think, are two application points. 
But there's something bigger going on in the story. I do think we can learn morals, of course, from the Old Testament. Therefore, our instruction. But there's something bigger going on in these so-called or seemingly random events. If you would count up all the coincidences in the story of Esther, I don't know how many you'd get, but probably over 20 or 25. Just coincidences. Let me give you a few. It just so happened that the king couldn't sleep. It just so happened he decided to read the Persian, Persian history book when he couldn't sleep. And it just so happened that he read the account of Mordecai the Jew stopping an assassination plot. And it just so happened that he wants to honor Mordecai for it. And it just so happens that Haman walks in at the same time. And it just so happens that Haman misunderstands the question. And it just so happens that Mordecai isn't killed but given the highest honors instead. And it just so happens that Haman's plot blows up in his face. As they say, that's too many coincidences. Did you ever say that? That's too many coincidences to just be fate. And so as we think about the whole story of Scripture, we in in Christian uh, theology can say, this is how God's providence works. How God controls history even through seemingly random events. And this is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Did you ever read that phrase before? God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. You can think about that as you think about the coincidences in chapter 6. And one other great Bible story of this is the story of Joseph. I already referenced it. But remember Joseph's story. You can uh, read it in the end of Genesis or around Genesis 50. Um, Joseph's brothers hated him because they were jealous of him. So they sold him as a slave And in God's mysterious providence, eventually Joseph became one of the highest-ranking officials in Egypt. And in God's providence, Joseph's brothers were in desperate need for food during a famine, and they went to Egypt for help, and it just so happened in God's providence that Joseph was there to help them. And what did Joseph say to his brothers when they found out what had happened? You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. That's God's providence. So a different author says, Like a subtle signpost, these coincidences point to an invisible hand at work. There you go. God's providence is an invisible hand at work, orchestrating all things according to the purpose of God's will, even through seeming coincidences. Earlier, we went over that phrase that's good for our own lives, you know, that maybe God put us here for such a time as this. I still want you to think about that, for such a time as this. But we also have another thing to think about for our own lives here that this God-meant-it-for-good principle in our lives. We don't always know why things happen when they do and, and for the reasons they do. Remember, Ecclesiastes talks about chance. A lot of times things just seem random in life. You, you know what I mean? 
I don't know if you've ever had a day where it was just crazy and you get to the end of the day and you're like, that was the weirdest day ever. That was so random. Maybe you get sick and you miss a day or two of work and then there's a snowstorm again and we get a nice call from an old friend and then we have an argument with our brother and so on and you look back and think, boy, that was just so random. But as Christians, we know that ultimately God has everything in his control and under his plan and sovereign will So when we look back on seemingly random things, even if we don't understand fully, we can say, you know, God is at work in and through those things. Even when we're in the weeds and the muck and mud of life, we know that God can work his plan, even through things like sleepless nights, random conversations. God can even work through the bad and stupid and sinful choices that we make because he's sovereign that way in his providence. So I just want to remind you of this, that as believers with the eye of faith, we can say luck and chance from a human perspective. I don't think that's a big deal. But ultimately, we know that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So when random things happen and and strange things and even bad things happen, I want you to have an eye of faith and say, you know what? God is in it, work through this, and ultimately, God means it for good. So I I just want you to think that principle in your own life about God's providence. All things work together for the good of those who love God, Paul said. And then he said, how unsearchable are his judgments and how mysterious his ways. With the eye of faith, we can see God working even through so-called coincidences. Well, what about Christ? Remember, the, the Old Testament points us forward to Jesus all the time. Well, I think we can take that that theme of seemingly random events and God's plan and providence and apply them and think about it in terms of Christ's life. If you didn't know very much about Jesus and his story of crucifixion, let's just say the only things you knew about Jesus was that he did great miracles and he loved people and he helped many people. And then people were screaming, crucify him, and they put him to death. If that's the only thing that you heard about Jesus, you would think, why? I mean, how random and how terrible that people would say, crucify him if he was so good. And he helped so many people. Why would they do that to Jesus? If you didn't know the bigger story, you'd have questions and say, why did this happen? But now that we know God is in control of all things, We know that God is behind it, working good for people in and through it. That reminds me, I'll end here, of what Peter said in Acts 2. Um, Peter was giving a sermon in, in Pentecost, and he talked about Christ's death. And he said, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So we can say that about the cross. Was it a random event that Jesus was nailed to the wood? No. God used that. He meant it for good. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That through Jesus' suffering and death on the cross, at the hands of evil men, whoever believes can find life and forgiveness and hope and deliverance and freedom. And so when we think about that great Bible phrase, God meant it for good, Think about that in your own life and think about it 
as you look at the cross where Jesus died. God meant it for good, salvation and life. Let's pray.